Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Monica Vermani to the show. Dr. Vermani is a clinical psychologist, author, and founder of Dr. Vermani Balanced Wellbeing, which is a private practice in Toronto and start living corporate wellness. She has over 25 years of clinical practical experience, holds a doctorate degree in clinical psychology, and is a registered member of the College of Psychologists of Ontario. Today, we will learn more about her academic and professional journey, her recent TEDx U of T talk, and her book, A Deeper Wellness, Conquering Stress, Mood, Anxiety, and Traumas. Dr. Vermani, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Brad, for having me. Well, I am looking forward to talking to you further. One of the things that I was telling you before we started recording is just learning more about my guests, and you have quite the journey. So to start us off, tell us about your path and how you got into psychology. So I think sometimes, you know, life just kind of brings you certain experiences that shape you to be who you are. And uh I was born in a family unit that, you know, I had a father that wasn't well from a work injury and uh, I became a caregiver, I think, just from the start. And so you grow up in a household with more compassion, more empathy, you know, a little more suffering and you become a caregiver a little bit. And so I've always gravitated towards volunteering and um, helping people if I can and, and doing little volunteer projects. And along the path, I think I had the right friends and mentors. I started working very young in department stores. And I remember some of the colleagues that work with me saying, you know, you should go into school and, and do that uh, social work or counseling or psychology stuff. And I never really thought of it seriously. I was raised with that idea of like getting a nice job for self-sufficiency, right? You want to make a, a stable job so that you don't have financial problems and things like this. And I kind of, as I grew, I was kind of led to uh, going to university. And once I got in, I did a science degree at U of T. So I started with a science program and doing that honors of science program. It was a four-year program. I ended up taking psychology and sociology as the electives and got very interested and did very well in them. So I think sometimes when you're doing well, you kind of feel aligned to taking more courses there and you start you know, shaping your path. So as I finished the science classes for that degree, I specialized in psychology, sociology, criminology, and women's studies. I did a lot of projects at U of T with women's studies and the women's group and um, found myself very interested in advocacy and trying to help people that were struggling. I know that a little bit of background with your family too. So kind of speak to that. I think you were an immigrant as well and the family uh, went through some changes that almost led you down this path a little bit as well. Yeah. So when you look at it, like my uh, parents are both from India and uh, I'm born and raised in Toronto. Um, so there's that generational difference. And with the suffering that came with dad's injury, I think there was a lot of learning that came with an eldest of five, my father, being with the youngest of five, my mother. And so the dynamics were very traditional, a caregiver, you know, my mom um, had very traditional roles, but then had to go back to school and try to upgrade and get school and work and 
change her path with the dad's injury. I started working very young. So I think the dynamics changed very quickly in my home where women started taking a, a, a non-traditional role, as I can call it. And so in my own path, I just wanted to be more independent. I wanted to learn how to, how to be self-sufficient. I wanted to also learn, you know, how to be the best I could in every area. And I always pushed myself to be more than what I was grown up to be. So when I look at it as I was a very shy, quiet kid, probably growing up, and with some of the you know challenges at home, it made it even harder to be more outgoing. I didn't have a lot of cousins or family members in the near you know vicinity. So as I grew, um, my mentors, my colleagues, my you know students, friends shaped me to be who I am today a little bit more than just my biological background. And, you know, talking about your background and your path, uh, you already said that you went to the U of T and what made you actually, what led you is probably a better way of putting this. What led you to continue and going on for your graduate degrees and your graduate work? So this is an interesting one. I finished U of T and I like every young person who goes to university, you think that all the answers come right when you finish school. And so I remember finishing my undergrad, but I have been very fortunate. I've been working since I was like 15 in stores and department stores. And I, I received um, a lot of jobs in, in healthcare. So I was working at a distress line and I had um, a, a shelter I, I volunteered time at. So as I grew finished university, I was like, what do I do now? And I didn't feel equipped to just work. So I wanted to go to school further, but I was a little bit stuck on timelines of applying to grad schools. So I wanted more hands-on knowledge. From U of T, I didn't feel like I got hands-on experience as much as I wanted. So I went to George Brown College for an Assaulted Women and Children's Advocate Program. In that program, you know, I built my self-esteem a lot more because I aced everything. You go from university to a college, it's a different dynamic. But then I got a lot of hands-on experience because they had placements and internships. One of the internships that I purposely chose was a prison, uh, a correctional facility for women called Vanier Center for Women. When I worked there, I met some remarkable professors, uh, mentors, the chief psychologist, and as I was working there, one of the chief psychologists used to give me extra work. And I, I was wondering why I was so special. And one day he asked me to work on his private practice. And he was a clinical psychologist, Dr. Lacqua. And he had a private practice. And he was like, listen, you're really bright. Um, what about doing some private practice on the side? You sound like, you know, you're eager to work in the field and, and learn more. And he said, I've been testing you out with your reports and stuff. You seem like you're a good writer. Let's bring you on board. So I did. I worked in a private practice plus at the Vanier Center. And when I was doing that, he turned into a coach. He's like, what's this college program? Who goes to university and then goes to a college? I go, I do. I wanted the hands-on <laughs> experience. And he's like, okay, well, you got your hands-on experience. Now go apply to your master's and your PhD and become me. Become a psychologist. You have it. And even if I didn't have the full confidence to believe that at that moment, um, I think with his encouragement, I decided to apply. And so I applied to a various number of schools. And then I wanted to be able to work as well as go to school. And I tried to see what option was feasible with me working because I had a job at CAMH as well in the anxiety disorders clinic. Actually, at that time, Metfors, which was a forensic unit. And then I was working in this private practice doing uh, psychometrist duties, as well as the women's prison. 
So I've always juggled two to three jobs in the field since undergrad. And I've been blessed to have fantastic people around me that just encouraged support and gave me the mentorship to make me also believe in my own skill set, where today I try to do that for others. So you brought up one thing that I was going to ask, and I'm looking again, I have multiple screens here. So I'm looking to the right and I actually see that uh, experience that you had uh, a little over four years uh, at, uh, is it uh, Iqua? Is it, how am I saying that? Giorgio Iqua? Oh, Ilacqua. Yeah. Ilacqua. Dr. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so tell us a little bit more about uh, being a psychometric or a psychometrist. Okay. Yeah, a psychometrist is someone who does pre-interviews, pre-testing before a psychologist comes in and completes the interview and completes the testing. And we score, interpret. Uh, interpretation is actually done by the psychologist, but we turn into like an assistant before you meet the psychologist to finish the rest of the assessment, if you want to call it. So I did uh, get a lot of experience with vocational, psychological, forensic, as well as neuropsychological assessments. There were other doctors under that private practice that he had. And so I worked with other doctors as well. And I got a feel for what psychology felt like. And then I, I pursued it further. Um, mm -hmm. I already had the background with the undergrad. And then after the abused women and children's prison, uh, 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 prison experience and the program, I took that further to continue working in corrections. I worked in corrections also to be a little bit tougher. You know, there was a part of me thinking if I can work in the extremes, I can do everything in the middle. And sure, so for sure. me, practicums and internships are phenomenal places to get experience in places you can't get your foot in. Mm -hmm. And so that worked for me. And um, I've always taken challenges to get into places that maybe are hard to get into for the experience. And so... I worked at CAMH then in a forensic unit called Metfors. I worked at CAMH again in a different unit called the Anxiety Disorders Clinic. And I had to leave Dr. Lacqua's practice at one point to just work in the hospitals. And from working in the hospitals, I met other great mentors. And one of them was Dr. Katzman at uh, the Anxiety Disorders Clinic that me and him then built the START Clinic for Mood and Anxiety Disorders together. And we started that. And to me, it was like, if it works, it works. It doesn't, it doesn't. It's great experience. I always had a hospital job with it. It allowed me to have an academic clinical, um, you know, tie learning research, learning about how to write things and how to do things systematic in an institution, as well as private practice, where I got more counseling, more hands-on experience with clients and doing assessments in a different format. So the nice thing is, you know, for students today, I would strongly say, vary your experience so you can see what you like. The one thing I realize is life is trial and error. And by trying different fields, you get to see what you like and you don't like. One of my experiences was working at Lake Ridge Mental Health Center with children and families. And as much as I loved it, I loved working with children with anxiety. It taught me a different way to teach and train people with anxiety disorders because children manifest more anxiety in their body than they do with their thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so it taught me a different way to teach children how to work through anxiety. But the best thing about working with uh, that population was the children. You also have to cooperate with the parents. And so I found myself a little bit not disheartened about sometimes parents dropping off their kids and wanting psychologists to work with their kids, but not parents being involved to work on their own anxiety that they might be modeling in the household. 
So a part of me then after that experience chose to just work with adults and with adults, you don't have to work with their parents. <laughs> and <laughs> it was a, a different experience, but my experience has been varied, but very specialized. I do work with extremes. So I learned mood, anxiety, stress, trauma in an extreme. So I can do all the middle couples counseling. I can help people work on stress management. And I've been able to have fantastic mentors that have given me a chance. And then as I work hard and um, am dedicated to the profession, I think people just gravitate towards you. Very good summary. I love the advice. Um, you talked about mentors and Dr. Ilaqua and your experience as a uh, psychometrist. I said it correctly this time. Um, actually uh, gave you that confidence. Maybe like you said at the time, not really, but the next stage, even though you're getting all of this experience, is you eventually went to Adler School of Professional Psychology, which I believe now is called just Adler University, for both your master's and your PsyD. So what stood out about Adler? And, and tell us the path that led you to Adler. So Adler, the philosophy and the principle is nature and nurture you know, helps us be who we are. And I've always believed in that. Like there is some chemistry, but there's also our upbringing, our surroundings. And I felt that personally too. So it aligned as a principle that human behavior is tied. Our lifestyles are tied to both nature and nurture. And it was a principle that helped me, but also just the path. I had applied to a number of schools. I wanted to see where I could still continue to work. And so it was about feasibility. It was about money. It was about, you know, other people I knew had gone to the program and spoke highly of it and spoke about working with it. So it was a practical decision of like, I can still work in the private practice. I can still work in the hospital and I can do this program. And I've worked in the field of psychology since high school in some form or another. And so I've always been able to carry forth um, work experience for me, that was a benefit because I didn't see myself as an academic who loved just school. I loved learning school because I had the work experience to kind of tie the two together. So I feel like I was blessed to be able to have that experience of knowing school material even deeper because I was already doing the work in some capacity or seeing psychologists do the work. I worked with Dr. Nussbaum at CAMH and he taught me a lot about neuropsych. You know, I had, like I said, Dr. Ulaqua, who started the field, um, Dr. Katzman, who's a psychiatrist. So that was a different field of medication and understanding mood and anxiety disorders different and speaking at conferences and doing more research. So it taught me to do clinical work, but my passion and my love has always been working with clients hands-on in therapy. So the counseling psychology was primarily my focus. I very am grateful for all the wonderful hospital experience that I have working with research because it taught me how to have a balance of both because I do think as a good professional you want to be able to write you want to be able to write manuscripts and pay it forward in some way or another so that people benefit from the knowledge in other ways than just individual therapy right and I write for magazines now I write for you know commentaries and and some of that uh, material is more confident for me because of the writing experience I have. And um, moving forward in life, I've met some great psychiatrists who've done 
things in psychology that are very different. Dr. Brown and Dr. Groberg are two people who I learned a breath, body, mind program. We've mm -hmm. done volunteer work with 9-11 responders, with military, and it was a breath, body, mind. These are two psychiatrists that have brought in meditation and breathing. I've been meditating myself since I was 14 and uh, probably earlier 10, but 14 really actively. And these two psychiatrists taught me how to bring in not just the clinical and the CBT and the psychodynamic theories, but to bring in some meditation here and now, teach people coping skills because we're in a high stress, high anxiety, you know, prone society today. I like that you brought up the the breath, uh, body, mind, because you have, that's applicable to all different kinds of people. And I see in your history and your job experience, it was, it was for kids, adults, um, uh, some of the military as well. And, and bringing and the brain them and spinal into, cord. Yeah. Yes. The brain definitely. and spinal cord people who are paralyzed from the neck down, the hip down, they benefited from meditation more than anyone I've seen because they got out of their head. Mm -hmm. Our heads where the thought disorders come in from, right? Yeah. Our head gets overly active. We ruminate. We think about the past. We catastrophize about the future. But sometimes we have to just pause and reflect and stay in the moment. And and you kind of gave us a little teaser, and I'll get back to your book in a second, talking about, and, and your TED Talk, I believe, uh, addresses some of those negative thoughts and how to break through those and replace them with uh, other thoughts as well. Let me get back to Adler for one second, because a lot of our students and our listeners uh, and viewers uh, ask, okay, did you uh, apply directly to the master's program or the doctorate? Based on my research, I believe you applied to the doctorate program. Is that correct? Or did you apply to the master's? master's? Okay. I did the master's and it was in Toronto. And so it was okay. convenient for me at that time because I could continue working at CAMH. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I pursued the next step, which was going to do my PhD in Chicago. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that is what I couldn't figure out in my research. I know that uh, Adler had two uh, uh, locations, one in Toronto and one in Chicago. So I wasn't sure which one you went to. You actually took, have the best of both worlds. You actually experienced both of them. So that's kind of new. And um, I met some phenomenal professors there. I have to admit, I was very inspired by my doctorate. I remember doing my doctorate and a little bit thinking, like, I wonder what I'm going to learn. Like, I know so much. I'm already working in the field. The truth is, as much as we, we have to humble ourselves to realize we're always learning. It never mm -hmm. stops. No matter what age you're at, no matter how much experience you have, there's always more. And I learned sometimes how... Some of the mentors I have, the professors that I, I really respected in the field that were teaching how they pay it forward and how they shape their lives in the future, which taught me a lot. So we we talked a lot about your background. You mentioned CAMH, uh, you met FERS as well. We talked about the breath, body, and mind. You talked about many different mentors and coaches that you've had throughout. And it's almost like this path has been kind of laid out for you. And you've just been following this, this yellow brick road that's been just sitting in front of you the whole time. At what point did you decide that you wanted to open your own private practice? But because I worked, when I worked at Vanier, I, I worked with Dr. Ulacqua, who had a private practice. I kind of always learned from people that they worked in institutions or hospitals, but they had a private practice on the side. And so it was a way to evolve. It was a way to grow. It was also a way to serve different people from the population you work at, at the institution. So I've been in private practice um, since young, because whether I was working for somebody 
before my license uh, or after like the start clinic, it was my private practice. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that was our clinic and, and we built and we grew together. And um, at some point I just didn't want to do the same research or pharmaceutical studies. And we just decided to, you know, change paths. And I wanted to work somewhere else too. So then I got the job at UHN and I also worked at Gravenhurst at a prison uh, part-time doing some crises work. Then I just opened my own private practice just on the side to kind of keep a different flow of patients. I find for me, having the variety of different clientele helps me stay motivated, interested, and also doing research on different areas for me to be the best person I can be. You know, I, I do always feel like we do have to continuously upgrade and learn and help ourselves be motivated so we don't burn out with the same population sometimes. Mm -hmm. And and talking about uh, not doing the same thing over and over and, and getting that burnout, I'm going to share my screen here. Here is your main page um, uh, about you, but you also have multiple pages here. And let me move something out of the way so I can actually see up top here. But you actually have um, a private practice, and this is the MV uh, psychology.com, which is more geared toward, correct me if I'm wrong, more geared toward your private practice. And then you have your other website that I was on that talks a little bit more about you. This link right here leads to this other website. So there's a, there's a business aspect of, of running your own, uh, private practice as well. So tell us what was the most challenging aspect of getting up and running starting your own private practice i'm gonna say the fear like i think the fear is fear to me is self-doubt but plain mm -hmm. and simple you know um life only gives us what we can handle i feel like when the opportunity presents itself we show up and we make it happen but when it comes down to it um the self-doubt sometimes creeps in which is our thoughts and sometimes holds us back from taking the risks of trying and so the one thing about me from my young experience working in prisons, et cetera, is I always believe if you don't try, you don't know. So even if it was a job I didn't feel qualified for, I always applied. Met Fours was a job I got because I applied and I tried. And when they said I wasn't qualified for it, I asked for an interview anyways. And with that interview, they realized I had more experience than was presenting on my resume and I got the job. So I do have a strong work ethic of if you don't try, you don't know. And on a private practice front, start slow. I'm somebody who doesn't like to take a lot of risks. So I always had a backup plan. I had to survive. So I always had a hospital job and I opened the private practice at a slow and steady pace to build my confidence. And as it built and it felt more secure, then over time, I transitioned to making it more of a full-time job. Did you handle everything yourself or did you kind of hire out for advertising the, you know, booking appointments and receiving, you know, clients, um, insurance, that sort of stuff. Talk to us for a couple minutes about that. Yeah. So I am a hard worker, as you can hear, I've been working <laughs> jobs for a very long time and I did, I initially started the private practice doing everything by myself, but I did research. I looked at mentors, I looked at other people, I asked questions. We all have to humble ourselves to know that we don't know everything. And so go beyond yourself to ask questions. Look at people that you respect in the field and ask them, how did you get here? Because many of us had a path and it's nice for us to share our story to motivate you to be just as successful. You know, and I try to do that for people that I interact with. But um, yeah, at some point I just did everything myself and 
Then I slowly brought on resources, help, as I financially felt I was able to manage it. Okay. You, one thing that I uncovered is you actually have uh, online Dr. Bermani 18 Life Lessons self-help platform resource. So what made you create this program and tell us a little bit more about that program? So, you know, you were mentioning advertising. I, I, I've been fortunate enough to never have to advertise for my private practice. I have great resources because I've worked in so many places, family physicians, lawyers, um, private practices, hospitals. I get referrals from mostly word of mouth, people who are happy and they send it to their friends and family or the lunchroom conversation at a workplace. So I never advertised, but as I grew into my practice, I had more and more people asking me for things. And there's only one of me. So there's only so many hours in a day. And I wanted to give back to people who either couldn't afford continued therapy with me. And so I'm in an age bracket in a phase in my life. I've been blessed with great mentorship and, and, and guidance and, and training and also just work on myself. I wanted to be able to pay it forward. And for people who couldn't afford time or expensive therapy, I created the 18 Life Lessons. There are many videos of me talking about core topics that I talk about in my sessions here. And I put a handout and a worksheet attached to it. And the goal was for people who had children or a lot of obligations and don't have time for therapy in nine to five or nine to eight, whatever the hours are, they can sit with their laptop or their computer and watch a video and just start working on themselves. I'm all about all of us feeling a deserving to be the best version of ourselves, our highest and best version of ourselves. That comes from working on yourself and not making it all about work and other life tasks that you do outside of you. So the Life License is a self-help program I put together to put it forward. But at the time I put it together, I really have not been in the public eye. And so, you know, it, it caught on with my patients and other people who knew me, but I wasn't out there enough to um, have people that maybe who don't know about me benefit from it. So then came the book and I wrote the book as a supplementary text that is also overlapping with some of the material from the life lessons. And the book's called A Deeper Wellness. It's a workbook mm -hmm. and it's uh, about mood, stress, anxiety, and trauma management. And it, I've put in tidbits, I've put in worksheets, I've made it very helpful for people to just work through their things and not just stay stuck and continually work on yourself regardless of the time commitment you have. I've also recorded it as an audiobook because I do have some patients with chronic pain or ADD that prefer to hear the book than write in it. But it's a nice format of a workbook. So you, I've had a lot of people buy both, listen to it as well as write in it. Well, that's a good summary and a good transition. And as you were talking, I was sharing my screen. Obviously, you can go to Amazon uh, and look at the book as well. And there's an audio book, as you mentioned, the Kindle edition, and then the paperback version. And, you know, one thing that you already mentioned, and I was going to ask you, it seems like it is more of a handbook and a workbook combined. And you mentioned that it's more of a practical tool that you can continue coming back to. It's not like a regular book where you just read it once, set it aside and, and share it with your friends and then probably never read it again. It, it's almost like this could be used over and over and over again, because 
the practical side of it, you might read a certain passage or part of the uh, uh, workbook, and then it will apply and bring something up a little different, and you'll look at it a little differently. So tell me a little bit behind why you structured it that way. So I wanted this book to apply to everybody who reads it. And so I have teenagers, I have university students, I have senior citizens, I have adults, I have couples, I have single people. I wrote this book for anybody who reads it wherever they're at, whether you're engrossed in therapy or you have no experience in therapy at all. So it's life lessons, uh, like it, it overlaps with the life lessons of material that commonly people want to know about mood, anxiety management, stress management, understanding meditation, guilt, setting boundaries, saying no, self-esteem, how to feel worthy, how to break negative thought patterns that we get stuck in ruminating about over and over and over again. So I put some of my core, core topics that I talk about readily, and I wanted people to just work on themselves to be a better version of them. Some of my patients um, often spoke about, can you have other resources? Because when you, I don't see you, it'd be nice to have other things during the week before I see you again. And so I, during the pandemic, so many people were struggling and trying to get extra appointments. I started writing articles every week. So if you go to my podcast section of my website, there's an article every week during the pandemic where I had written an art article with actionable points. It's one thing to learn things and get motivated. It's another thing to have actionable points to work through things. And then I would read the article for people who needed to hear it instead of read it. And I also put a meditation once a week for you to just mindfully focus on one or two points that were important about that article. And it helps people just learn you know, how to focus on different topics. So putting the past where it belongs and there's the recording of it, you know, articles about here and now, what lies beneath anger, talking about anger. We all get angry. Anger turned inwards is depression, generalized anxiety, panic disorder, PTSD. What goes up must come down is about panic attacks, understanding the cycle of panic attacks, putting problems on the table. All problems manifest in your life in three ways physical symptoms, negative thoughts, negative behaviors, understanding, you know, too much uh, of a good thing is about substance abuse, understanding bad habits of food, porn, addictions with alcohol and drugs. It is important for us to start recognizing working in ourselves is for us to be better versions of us. When you're in pain, you spill over onto others in negativity. And when you're in health, you also have a nice ripple effect that you affect your role models, your children, your mentors, your colleagues, your workplaces. I like that summary. And I was sharing the screen while you were talking. One thing that uh, this will lead to is, you know, trying to get out in the public and, and getting your word out and, and paying it forward. Um, you're doing a fabulous job now, as we see in the background, uh, some of the uh, uh, Facebook or the uh, book covers for your book as well. But you also did something fairly recently, and you actually were on TEDx U of T talk. Now, tell us how this transpired and what was the focus of the talk? So the path has just been unfolding, as you mentioned earlier. And so once the book came out, I also, um, you know, started doing some PR work. And as I did that, I got into Forbes and Oprah Daily and other magazines, Shot Lane and beautiful other places that have been putting out the word of, you know, Dr. Romani's uh, an expert in these areas of mood, anxiety, stress, promoting the book a bit, but also just being able to speak about some of the topics I'm very confident in helping people with. 
And one of the avenues that I got through an email was someone saying, have you thought about doing a TED talk? So then I was like, why not? What's another thing on my bucket list? Let's try that too. And then I ended up putting it on my bucket list, applying for it, going through the process, which was quite lengthy, quite tedious, and uh, quite stressful with a full practice and a busy workload. But um, I got through it. And a couple of weeks ago, I was on the TEDx stage at U of T, which was great because I started my academic career at U of T. So it felt wonderful to be there. And um, I wanted to pick a topic that was inspiring, but also gave actionable steps that when you listen to it, you walk away knowing something you can do right away. Instead of just being inspired, I wanted to give you something. And think about it is about the power of our thoughts. Thoughts are powerful things. And we're not born as young children having all these negative thoughts. We, over time, start attaching ourselves to low self-esteem, self-doubt concepts that hold us back. And it's about you learning how to reframe, reconceptualize, challenge, and be a better version of you, which means pause and reflect. We sometimes get so busy in that rat race out there that we don't make time to pause and notice, where is my head? You can't have two thoughts at the same time. So either there's a positive one there or a negative one. And if it's negative, what are we doing about it? Are we staying and ruminating? Or are we actually following through to challenge it, reframe it, and reconceptualize it? That's a good summary. And I should mention for the audience and the listener is, even though you already recorded the TED Talk, it's not available yet. Is there any ETA on that? Or are they just going to tell you, so hey, it's going to be coming ETN out? ETA and TEDx stage will be, uh, they're editing it now because I wasn't the only person who spoke that day. And sure. so as they edit all of our our, uh, the speakers talks that day it should be released in the next few weeks and if you're on my instagram facebook linkedin profile dr monica vermani you will find updates on when it comes out the moment i know trust me you guys will know i'm putting ads out there but i'm on all of those platforms i put tidbits of information articles that i've written in the media as well as just you know helpful topics i write for a magazine here and I was in an empowered 40 over 40 women's shoot. And I write these wonderful columns for Noki and other places, Chat Lane, et cetera. So I've had some wonderful articles. Keep up to date. You can go on my website and sign up for a newsletter. Once a month, I put a newsletter out with useful tips to help with mental health. And um, trying to be the best version of you is all of our goals, right? We want a happier life. And that really comes from starting with you. I like that summary, and I'm just going through some of your social media uh, accounts now and, and uh, Instagram here, of course, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. And, and I'm then, a regular columnist for Psychology Today, so every two weeks, there's a nice article there as well. Yep, and here is Psychology Today as well for you. So we will share all of these links for uh, everybody once we go live. Uh, I should mention that you also have this uh, YouTube channel. Uh, that has some uh, uh, nice videos in here. And they're nice and short, five, six minutes long. And so if you just have some time during your lunch period, go ahead and check this out as well. So Dr. Vermani, I, I need to ask you this, you know, and when we kind of reflect on your academic and your professional journey thus far, because it's not over with yet, what stands out the most to you or what surprises you the most? I think sometimes our own resilience and how we get in the way. You know, the one thing I've learned personally and professionally is we get in the way. Sometimes it's our 
lack of confidence in ourselves. And it is an inner journey that creates your outer journey. It's believing in yourself. Your inner world is your outer world. As you believe capable, competence, you know, strength, resilience, you are able to materialize and manifest what you would like on the outside. Don't get me wrong. We all have suffering and I'm not discounting that life brings challenges that feel overwhelming or feel so limiting that we don't feel like we can get past them. But my work experience working with such extreme populations has taught me how incredible we are. I've had people with brain and spinal cord injury reinvent their lives in such ways. I've seen people survive each and every day with chronic pain. I've seen couples that were at the break of of ending come together and find love and, and see good in each other again. We are all able to change. We sometimes have to pause and reflect and see, can we do it alone or do we need to bring in the resources to help us through? We're born in an individual journey, but amongst a collective, don't feel embarrassed to ask for help, for money, for therapy, for you know, getting things aligned in your life. Learn that we are the best we can do with the knowledge we have. And we're constantly growing and constantly learning I love today's technology world with podcasts and information that is so accessible for us, but it can be overwhelming at times too. learn to, you know, take actionable steps that are, you know, feasible for your lifestyle, but learn to work on yourself because without doing that, you get on that hamster on the wheel and you get into a mundane place where we start numbing things instead of actually dealing with them. I have to ask this question. I probably could answer for you after looking at all of your uh, history and background and talking with you over the last 50 or so minutes. What do you love most about your job? I love the fact that I'm constantly learning. And Mm -hmm. I don't mean learning to help my patients and my clients, learning just personally to see my own limitations and to see the resilience people have and the strength people have. And I've learned to really remove judgment. My patients have taught me to never judge and to just realize that the two main reasons we suffer in life is we don't accept people as they are and we don't accept ourselves as one of the people. And we also don't accept situations as they are. Acceptance is a thought. And when it comes down to it, removing judgment and just seeing life as a series of experiences, regardless of what challenges you have going on, helps us just move forward. How can you make today your best version of you? How can you make today a little more joyful to live each day as if it's your last? The biggest thing I've learned, each and every person who walks in here, they teach me to live each day as if it's your last. You don't know what changes, but to also believe in your skill set. You know, we talk about faith and fear. Fear is doubting your skill set to get through things that are challenging. Faith is believing in your skill set. The one thing that each and every person who comes to therapy, they believe in betterment. They believe in themselves. They believe in change. We're all human. To be human is to error. We're going to wobble. We're going to have ups and downs, correct and continue. The biggest thing I've learned in life, correct and continue. I like that summary. At the end of most of our podcasts, we uh, have a few fun questions for our guests. And so I have a couple for you. Uh, Number one is, what is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? Term, principle, or theory. Um, I'm going to give you a a quote that I really live by that I've had to learn the hard way. And that was, don't give from your well, give from your overflow. And many of us give and give and give. And if we're healthcare providers, we have a tendency to overextend at times too. One of my own lessons in life, and this is a theory in many ways too, of like, don't give from your well, 
give from your overflow. Make sure you take care of you before you take care of others. Make sure that you're replenished so that you can be the best version of yourself in every aspect of your life. I wouldn't be as good as I am to my clients if I can't take care of me first, right? We do the best we can with what we know, and I'm still fine-tuning that process. I like that answer. And the first thing that came to my mind when you were talking about that is back when I was going through grad school, I was looking at what occupations have the highest burnout rate. And believe it or not, in the psychological field, uh, they were back then, I'm not sure what it is now, but they were in the top 10, you know, air traffic controllers, some other ones that are high demand and high stress. But you have to think about this for a second. One of my guests said, you know, you have to take care of yourself and your own relationships, because if you can't take care of that, and you're a psychologist or psychiatrist, you have 10, 15 other relationships that you're thinking about all the time. So make sure you take care of yourself. So I like that answer. And the self-care is important just to learn how to unplug from your day. And you mm-hmm. have other roles you play. I remember an acupuncturist once saying to me, uh, eight hours sleep, eight hours work, eight hours play. So one third of your day is at work. Make sure mm-hmm. the other two thirds you're actually doing properly too and you're taking care of yourself. Right, right. Do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology? Trial and error. The best thing that's worked for me to be who I am today is trying things and don't let a thought hold you back. Just because you don't think you're capable doesn't mean you're not because I'm living experience of it right in front of you right now that I've tried and here I am. And I am very proud of the work I've done and I can see my own growth of how far I've come, but um, it's not over yet. It's uh, one of those things that I like to pay it forward. It is nice to be able to be of service and help to others. There's an intrinsic value, but more than that, each and every one of us have our skill set that we're here to make pay forward. And so let's pay it forward and let's try to be healthy in the journey so that we don't deplete ourselves. And that actually goes along the same lines of a lot of these motivational books uh, are saying, find your purpose in life and and paying it forward could be your purpose especially in this niche that you found for yourself um one other fun purpose has to be just living in health we do have to look at our mental and physical health and i you know in in the ted talk speak about mental fitness i think we have to take a turn we've done a great job at promoting physical fitness let's try to make this next chapter since the pandemic all the effects it is important to make the world mentally fit now. Mm -hmm. I agree. One final fun question for you. If you had the time or money to go on one trip or complete one project, what would you do? (sighs) So I'm going to give you the trip. I've been wanting to go to Egypt since high school. So I actually, a fun fact about me is I um, used to paint quite a bit. And I was an artist and I actually used to at the hard house at U of T used to have my paintings go up there. And so at one point I was thinking about a crossroads of psychology or going into like an art college. And I chose to keep art as a hobby and I put it aside, but the art field had such an intrigue to Egypt and the culture and the art. And I've been always wanting to go and I've haven't been able to make the time I've traveled a lot, but that's a trip that I think I'm saving like two, three weeks to just really go and submerge myself. So that's a project I'd like to do for me. And um, it's nice for us to reinvent ourselves constantly and look at a bucket list. And so one of the projects is just to have, make a little more time to do some of the things on my bucket list 
as I help others, I want to make sure that I also fulfill my own personal fun things that make me, you know, Monica. Well, Monica, you should use your Instagram account to share some of your paintings. I, I scrolled through that while you were talking. I went, where are the paintings? You should put They're my that. parents' house all over the walls because <laughs> I stopped after UFT painting, which we'll all get back to someday. But, you know, art kind of comes in different forms. The one thing I have to say that makes me unique as a psychologist is my art background. I think I'm more creative um, than a lot of, of people I know because of the art background. I, I brainstorm really good ideas. I help find resources outside of me. I definitely go outside the box to find solutions and suggestions. To me, everything's a problem, solution, problem, solution. Sometimes we get caught up in the emotion tied to a story, but we really need to get to problem, solutions, problem, solutions to help ourselves move out of difficult places. And I find the creative side of me is very good at finding solutions, resources, and also just things to do to make you have a better relationship with yourself. I like that summary and you are doing very well. I applaud you for all of the work that you're doing and paying it forward. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to discuss or bring up on this podcast? I think the biggest thing I'm going to say is all you people embarking on psychology. If it's a passion, you know, put two feet forward. I find once you put a step forward in any path, it will materialize and manifest the hardest part is making a decision to go in a path. Once you start making that decision, things unfold, people show up, trust the process and sometimes get out of the way, you know, watch your thoughts. What are those saboteurs that come in holding you back or telling you you can't do something because each and every person you speak to that's a mentor will say that they went through the same path. I like that summary, Monica. I've really enjoyed learning more about your journey. Thank you for taking the time to share your journey with us today. So much for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.